Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session, and instructions will follow at that time. If interns require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. At this time, I'd like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you, Stephanie. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect workshop, Living with Myeloproliferative Neoplasms. And today's program is part one of a three-part series, and the title of today's program is Progress in the Treatment of Myeloproliferative Neoplasms, MPN. Now, today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations, as well as MPN organizations, the MPN Education Foundation and the MPN Research Foundation. And it really is because of that collaboration that we've been able to reach so many of you on the call today. We have over 344 participants on the call today, many, all, many of you, of course, from the United States, all over the United States. And we also have international participants from Australia, South Africa, Sweden, Turkey, and United Kingdom. So this is a bit of a global call, and we're really delighted that you've chosen to spend this next hour with us to learn more about the progress in the treatment of MPN. Now, today's program was supported by an unrestricted educational grant from Insight, and I really want to thank them for their support of this program, and not just of this program and this series, but also they support also a series on TV, um, on polycythemia vera, and they have been a long-term supporter of these programs for many years, so we very much appreciate that. Now, I'd like to start by introducing our first speaker, and our first speaker is Dr. Jean Palmer, Assistant Professor of Medicine, Hematology, Oncology, Mayo Clinic. Dr. Palmer is going to, is going to address an overview of myelofibrosis, polycythemia vera, and essential thrombocythemia. She'll also discuss staging and diagnosing, current standard of care, and new treatment approaches, what to expect from treatments, and working with your healthcare team to manage your symptoms. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Palmer. Hi, thank you so much for the kind introduction. Um, so I have a long list to talk about today, so we will get started on it. Um, the first thing to, to say is that what, what I will be reviewing is myeloproliferative neoplasms, or um, which is, is sort of the, the overview of, of what includes polycythemia vera, essential thrombocytosis, and myelofibrosis. Myelofibrosis can be primary, which would just be arising out of its own, or it can also follow um, polycythemia vera or essential thrombocytosis. Uh, so the first thing is how are these, how are these uh, bone marrow disorders actually diagnosed? The first way they can be diagnosed is actually just with routine laboratory testing. You go to your doctor, they test your blood, they say, oh, look, your platelets are too high, your red blood cells are too high, um, which would be in the case of essential thrombocytosis or polycythemia vera. Or in the case of myelofibrosis, you might actually have presented with anemia or an, a large spleen was noted on a physical exam. Oftentimes, these diseases will present with symptoms. These symptoms would include things um, like in polycythemia vera, for example, some itchiness, uh, in particular after taking a shower, redness of the skin, headaches. Um, in essential thrombocytosis, sometimes people have blood clotting um, issues, such as having a stroke or a heart attack, or they may also present with excessive amounts of bleeding. In myelofibrosis, there are many symptoms that can present the disease. Um, some of the most um, difficult ones include enlarged spleen and pain related to the enlarged spleen, um, as well as bone pain, fevers, night sweats, um, or unexplained weight loss. So the diagnosis, uh, the diagnostic workup for these disorders uh, varies per disorder, so I'll just do them one by one. The first one is polycythemia vera. Um, in that one, an elevated hemoglobin is noted. Um, and the first thing is, is to rule out this isn't due to some other cause, such as having a persistently low oxygen, which we, people can have if they have sleep apnea. Um, once it's been ruled out that there's nothing else causing the hemoglobin to go up, um, the next step is to say, well, is this clearly going to be a bone marrow disorder? And that can be done by looking at a genetic mutation in the blood, the genetic mutation that's associated with 96% of patients with polycythemia vera is um, a mutation called the JAK2 mutation. And this you'll hear about later as I, as I talk more about um, treatments and everything as well. Um, and, as, and so if you have the JAK2 mutation and clear evidence 
of a bone marrow process, at that point you kind of get your diagnosis. However, if you don't have the JAK2 mutation, which does occur in about 4% of patients, then sometimes a bone marrow biopsy is needed to be able to clearly define that this is bone marrow disorder. The next one is essential thrombocytosis, in which case you have a very high platelet count. In about 50 to 60% of patients who have essential thrombocytosis, a JAK2 mutation will be present. In another additional 10% or so, there will be another mutation called an MPL mutation. Now, one thing I do want to clarify before I go any further, when I talk about these genetic mutations, these are not mutations that you pass on. They're not mutations you have inherited. They're mutations that you develop with the disease. So again, this is not a genetic mutation that you've inherited from anybody, nor is it one that you can pass on to your children, which is a really important take-home point because we do talk a lot about these genetic mutations, and that's something that always pops into people's mind um, when we talk about that. So again, these are not inherited mutations. They're not mutations you pass on. Um, with essential thrombocytosis, you have an elevated platelet count. Again, JAK2 mutation can happen a lot. Another mutation, MPL, can happen. However, even if you have those mutations, we generally recommend a bone marrow biopsy done at the time of diagnosis. And then finally, for myelofibrosis, that disease is almost invariably diagnosed with a bone marrow biopsy. And in the bone marrow biopsy, what we see is a lot of scar tissue and fibrosis. And this scar tissue and fibrosis basically tells us what's going on, but also can the degree of fibrosis can sort of predict how you're going to do with different treatments and how you'll do in general. Some people who have myelofibrosis, about half of them will have the JAK2 mutation. Another 10 to 15% will have the MPL mutation. And then there's a third mutation that we see a lot in myelofibrosis, which is one called the calreticulin mutation. These mutations are helpful to us for diagnosis. They also can help us predict how you're going to do with the disease. Um, in 10% of patients, though, with myelofibrosis, none of these mutations will be found. And we are discovering new mutations as we go along, um, but these can be important things for your doctor to know to help sort of counsel with regards to prognosis and stuff like that. In myelofibrosis, there will also be a very enlarged spleen and enlarged liver. Um, because the bone marrow has a lot of scar tissue, um, now everyone, I live in Arizona, so we have a big desert outside, and I always equate this to the desert. Your bone marrow is like the desert, so if you try to plant anything such as bone marrow cells, they just aren't going to grow. So what ends up happening is that the bone, the, this, the bone marrow cells that normally produce your normal red blood cells, white blood cells, et cetera, are actually produced in different organs. So you can often get an enlarged spleen, enlarged liver, and this is something that is secondary to just them producing all sorts of blood. So the prognosis of the, these diseases varies greatly. Um, there's a lot of, in terms of how we d define the prognosis, a lot of it depends on which disease we're talking about. So with, with essential thrombocytosis and polycythemia vera, people can live very close to a normal life expectancy, especially with essential thrombocytosis. When we look at how people are going to do with their disease, we look uh, with polycythemia vera and essential thrombocytosis, a lot of times we look at the white blood cell count and whether they've had a history of blood clots. In myelofibrosis, there's actually a dynamic, um, it's called the Dynamic International Prognostic Scoring System, or the DIPS, D-I-P-S-S. And this is determined by age, number of white blood cells, hemoglobin, constitutional symptoms, and percentage of blasts. And again, you don't need to remember all this stuff. It's just there's a set of clinical criteria that we look at. And that's one of the things that your doctor will probably be looking at when they, they sort of give an idea of what's going to happen with disease. So what do we do to treat these diseases? Now, it's important to remember what we're looking at. Since polycythemia, vera, and essential thrombocytosis have a fairly long lifespan, the treatments are primarily designed to reduce your symptom burden and reduce the risk of complications associated with the disease, such as blood clots. So for, let's start with polycythemia, vera. The first thing you do is phlebotomy, I mean, good old-fashioned bloodletting. Um, however, when that's not effective, other agents, such as a drug called hydroxyurea, can be used. Recently, rexolitinib, or Jacify, has been approved for the treatment of polycythemia vera in patients who aren't tolerant to the other treatment responses. Now, rexolitinib is a drug, or Jacify is a drug that I'm going to be talking about also with myelofibrosis. So remember I talked before about that JAK2 mutation. 
the and this JAK2 mutation, which is present in polycythemia myelofibrosis. Basically, JAK2 is a protein on the cell surface that provides a whole signaling cascade. So it basically talks to the rest of the cell to make it grow. So what we know is that in patients who have any of these myeloproliferative neoplasms, these cells are getting these constant signals to grow and constant signals to grow. So what we want to try to do is block some of that signaling. We actually initially targeted JAK after the discovery of the JAK2 mutation, but it's very important. You do not need any of these mutations. In particular, you do not need the JAK2 mutation for a JAK inhibitor to work. It, it basically just sort of led to the discovery of it, but it's not critical that you have this mutation for these drugs to be effective. Um, and we'll talk later on about how where the role of JAK2 is, especially in myelofibrosis. Um, just for central thrombocytosis, your goal is just to get your platelets down. So one of the first things we do is we put people on aspirin to help prevent thrombosis, and the same applies actually for polycythemia vera. But then the other thing we can do is use drugs like hydroxyurea or even a drug called enagrelide, which can be very helpful in keeping the platelets at a safe level so you don't get a lot of blood clotting issues. So in terms of the treatment for myelofibrosis, this is kind of an exciting area. Um, the treatments vary substantially. We actually have good treatments for the disease, which can help control symptoms. And we're also pursuing other things that may help reduce the fibrosis in the marrow, et cetera. Um, the only curative treatment is bone marrow transplant. Now, I'll have to preface this and give a qualifier that I am a bone marrow transplant doctor, so I do have somewhat of a bias in this setting. But there's also a lot of other treatments that are really very good and certainly um, are very effective in terms of reducing symptoms and possibly even make, making people live longer. So the first thing is, is with myelofibrosis, one of the worst problems people have with it is the symptom burden. You can have fevers, bone pain, enlarged spleen, decreased appetite. A lot of people have a lot of weight loss. This is because when people have myelofibrosis, very frequently, not everyone, but a lot of people just have this way overactive inflammatory system going on. So if you think of when you cut yourself and you get that red swelling that's painful on your arm, your whole body's kind of going through this. What ruxolitinib does, or Jacify, is it can actually reduce a lot of that inflammation. And this is, happens in people with and without the JAK mutation. The benefit of ruxolitinib is it can make your spleen shrink, can make bone pain get better, fevers go down, improve appetite. And this effect results in a very marked improvement in your quality of life. And this occurs within the first few weeks of starting the drug, potentially. So this may last several years. Only downside that people have with the ruxolitinib is it can make the blood counts go down. People can become anemic. Their platelets can go down. And all of these things can make it harder to tolerate and, and usually are what limits the use of Jacify or ruxolitinib in patients who have myelofibrosis. So in order to other drugs coming down the pipeline for myelofibrosis, there's a lot of new JAK inhibitors that are coming down. There's pacritinib, momolitinib, NSO18. All of these drugs are currently only available on clinical trial, although pacritinib is getting somewhat close to FDA approval. It's not there yet. But all of these are available on clinical trial, and they're all good at reducing symptoms, and, but all of them seem to be a little bit easier on the blood count. So if somebody has anemia or low platelets, so they can't be on the ruxolitinib or Jacify, a lot of times these drugs will be better tolerated just because of the way that they interact with the cell signaling process. So there's some other really cool approaches that are coming down the pipeline, and these are also only available in clinical trial, but there's quite a few centers that have clinical trials for these agents, so it's always worth asking your doctor and trying to find out where they may be. So the first one is a drug called PRM151. This is a really cool one. It's a new protein um, that is designed to sort of alter the immune system, make it less likely to make a lot of scar tissue. Um, and by reducing some of that scar tissue and fibrosis, you actually really help improve the blood counts and can make people feel better with it. Another thing they're looking at is a drug that blocks a certain protein called TGF-beta. This protein promotes fibrosis, so by blocking it in theory, you might be able to reduce the fibrosis. Um, and those, both of those agents are targeting, targeting fibrosis. But then there's another agent that's fairly interesting called Mtelostat which is a drug called a telomerase inhibitor. And this is just a different way of, of, of targeting these cells that are signaling inappropriately and growing. 
Um, there's also other medications such as hedgehog inhibitor. Um, there's hypomethylating agents. There's a lot of different things coming down the pipeline that we're still going to wait to see how they turn out. Now, the final, the final treatment that is worth discussing is, again, bone marrow transplant. This is a curative option for this disease, and I think with some of our advances with bone marrow transplant, we've gotten a lot better at it, and people do fairly well with it. Um, the, what happens with the bone marrow transplant, essentially, is you have to find somebody who can be a donor. You get somebody's cells, so our goal is to wipe out whatever cells are existing in your body that are diseased and replace them with healthy ones. You get two benefits from this. Number one, you get a healthy blood-making system. But number two, you get a um, these new cells have a new immune system that if there's any last bits of, the, of your disease system left behind, this new immune system can attack it. That leads to some of the... Tr so the first thing we need to do is find a donor. Everybody has about... Any sibling has a 25% chance of being a match, and we can look at unrelated donors. Then you, it's a fairly involved process, including chemotherapy, um, hospital stays, and, and there is a lot of complications that can occur with transplant. It is something that definitely is limited by its morbidity. We definitely reserve it for people who have higher risk disease, but again, it can be a very curative treat approach for patients, especially younger patients and patients who are otherwise quite healthy. And it's something that's always worth at least having the conversation, even if you decide you don't really want to go with the risks of transplant. Um, so to summarize, these myeloproliferative neoplasms are really a heterogeneous group of disorders with a lot of clinical issues. Um, I know Dr. Verstofik is going to discuss more at length some of the, the symptoms and methods of improving symptoms in patients who have these diseases, um, and he will go over that. But again, I think that the important thing to take home from this is that, number one, we're learning a lot more about it. Number two, we have a lot more treatments that are becoming very effective in treating these diseases and hopefully even eventually being able to reverse some of these manifestations and give people longer and better quality lives. Um, so again, it, although there, there are a, a really wide variety of diseases and can have a fairly substantial symptom burden, we definitely have a lot of new treatments that are coming down the pipeline that will certainly help with the therapy and, and help improve quality of life and longevity as well. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Palmer. That was really outstanding and just a wonderful um, introduction to the call and really um, explaining all the details. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. And our next speaker is Dr. Serdan Vistovzek. And Dr. Vistovzek uh, is, uh, um, uh, has been a, a, really a, a very frequent presenter on these MPN programs and our PD programs as well. And he's a professor of medicine, director, Hans A. Pilon's Clinical Research Center for Myeloproliferative Neoplasms, Department of Leukemia, MD Anderson Cancer Center. And Dr. Vistovzek uh, is going to be um, uh, addressing understanding common symptoms, strategies to reduce potential complications of MPN, communicating with the healthcare team about staging and progression, talking with your doctor about what symptoms should prompt you or your caregiver to call the office, quality of life, prognosis and life expectancy concerns, and the important role of clinical trials. So Dr. Vistovzak has quite a bit to cover, and I'm going to now turn this program really with great pleasure uh, to Dr. Vistovzak. Uh, thank you very much for having me on the program. Again, this is really valuable, and I enjoy it very much. I appreciate you uh, inviting me again. And indeed, there are a number of topics to cover, so let's talk about the symptoms. We heard about a number of symptoms that happen in patients with ET, TV, or MF, and I'll use abbreviations for simplicity. We usually can separate uh, those symptoms in uh, three groups. Those symptoms related to the circulation, Circulation is impaired in patients with uh, myeloproliferative neoplasms when there are too many cells, specifically in ET and PV. If you have too many cells, the, the flow of the blood may be affected, so the patients may com complain about headache, blood vision, dizziness, loss of concentration, itching, tingling in the fingers or toes, uh, hypersensitivity, or even pain in palms and soles. These are related mostly to the circulation. The second area is uh, uh, symptoms related to inflammation. Uh, these diseases do come with a lot of inflammatory proteins being produced in the bone marrow and blood that uh, lead to uh, loss of weight, night sweating, bone aches and pains, uh, 
they talk, uh, they, then we are talking about inactivity, loss of sexuality, fatigue, weakness, low-grade fevers, so systemic inflammatory-related symptoms. And the last uh, group of symptoms are related to organ enlargement. This would be enlargement of the spleen, particularly spleen that happens in about 80% of the patients with malofibrosis, for example, and also enlargement of the liver that can be seen in some patients. So this goes along with abdominal pain, abdominal distension, early satiety, loss of uh, appetite, loss of weight, inactivity, inability to bend. Those symptoms are the symptoms that we are talking about, and they can be seen in patients with maloproliferative neoplasms to different extent, obviously, to, in different situations, more of circulatory uh, or symptoms in ETNPV, more of the organ enlargement type of symptoms in malfibrosis and inflammatory symptoms in all the aspects of these NPNs. Now, how we cope with this uh, problem is uh, by, first, of course, uh, talking to physicians and involved uh, healthcare providers about it and conveying the problems that uh, go along with uh, having a disease and living with it. And uh, uh, we all acknowledge that, in fact, the communication has not been perfect in the past between the patients and, and physicians or uh, healthcare providers because uh, of uh, we always find excuses. It's, uh, it's uh, a short period of time. We don't have time to discuss it. We don't know how to convey that uh, aspect of, of the disease problem. Uh, it, it is fine to have some symptoms, and none of this is justifiable. It is not fine to have a symptoms. If the symptoms are uncontrolled, that is a problem. The symptom control has become a very important aspect of our uh, care for the patients with MPN. There are uh, uh, new tools that are being developed to perhaps uh, smooth out the communication, not just verbally, but also in a written forms or electronic forms, there are specific questionnaires that I'm referring to. This is maloproliferative specific questionnaires, about 10 questions with the most common symptoms that happen that many patients know about, and perhaps I hope doctors are picking up to use in everyday practice to perhaps assess the patient's condition in some proper uniform way when they see them in a clinic. There are ways of teaching uh, how to assess uh, the utility of the medications that we use by looking not only at the blood cell count improvement or the size of the spleen reduction, but also improvement in the symptoms. And the community of MPN doctors certainly embraced the symptom control as one of the important factors for judging the efficacy of the medications. On the part of the patients, however, I would always encourage to eliminate other factors that can contribute to development of the symptoms, be fit, eliminate smoking, reduce or control, or try to prevent other, other diseases or other complications in life that can contribute to the symptomatology, so controlling or eliminating or preventing diabetes, high blood pressure, circulatory problems, cardiovascular problems, obesity. So to be fit and have a healthy lifestyle is important. There are no specific supplements or foods usually that we would suggest. Many people ask me that in the clinic, but just to be aware of other complications that happen in people that have multiple medical problems and try to avoid that. So be engaged and modify perhaps a lifestyle to a, a healthier one. Avoid smoking. In polycythemia vera, for example, there is no need to supplement Iron, that is a common question that I get from the patients. Iron levels in patients with PV commonly go very low because of phlebotomies, and just supplementing iron because it's low would make red blood cells grow more, so that's not advisable. In some special circumstances, perhaps yes, but not in general. And, but otherwise, there are no specific supplements. So communication about uh, the symptoms, the supplements, the lifestyle, the uh, Problems with uh, everyday life is what we would like to uh, have when we engage in, in therapy of patients with maloproliferative uh, neoplasms. Um, there are some specific situations which we would perhaps call acute, uh, where there is a need for uh, rapid uh, engagement with the patient. If there is a, a blood clot that perhaps develops in a lower leg, that would lead to acute enlargement of the lower leg, a calf which would be tender and swollen, which would indicate impairment of the circulation. 
that needs to be taken care of uh, faster rather than waiting for a week to see a doctor. Uh, because, for example, that clot can uh, enlarge and, and affect the whole leg or spread into the lungs. Or uh, acute shortness of breath uh, uh, that lasts and uh, is associated with the significant uh, difficulties with breathing and a chest pain, which would perhaps suggest uh, some clotting issues with the circulation in the lungs. Of course, there are other sites of the body where there might be a clotting issue that would prevent uh, blood flow that would lead uh, patients to suffer acutely with the, uh, with the symptoms and that would require a call to the office. Or, on the other hand, some bleeding episodes are possibilities. You see we are talking about the circulatory problems, either clotting or bleeding. Bleeding in the spleen, for example, leads to uh, acute enlargement of the spleen, which is very painful. Uh, it's cruciating pain that usually leads patients to go to emergency room rather than even calling because it's so bad. Bleeding episodes uh, can exist also in the GI tract in patients with enlarged spleen, for example, where there is a pressure on circulation in the abdomen. These are rare but serious acute conditions that one needs to be aware of. Not that we would need to extraordinarily worry about this, but awareness of the, about those instances is important. Otherwise, to address all of these issues that I talked about it, when you see your doctor, uh, is important to be engaged. I like to tell my patients, for example, that the best patient is the patient that is very well educated and it's part of the team. It's a team effort that is important uh, for not just a team effort on the part of a healthcare team, but the team that incorporates the patient that is part of the team and takes care of himself and partly, to extent possible, is involved in, in the management of, of the problem. The, so quality of life issues are very important. Control of the blood cell count big organs, that's are old uh, parts of our uh, strategies to control the disease. Therefore, prognosis in the patients uh, certainly uh, may be improved if uh, these issues are monitored and controlled well. Life expectancy concerns exist uh, that has already been uh, addressed, uh, particularly in patients with malofibrosis where the disease is more genetically complicated, comes with a more aggressive uh, features where there is a, a possibility of affecting life expectancy, and therefore we have heard and we talk about bone marrow transplant in this, these uh, uh, patients, unlike, for example, patients with ET or PV where the uh, life expectancy is not of a, of a major concern in majority of the patients, but the goals of therapy are prevention of the blood clotting and institution of the therapy for patients with ET and PVs. Based, based mostly on assessment of a risk of clotting, not on a risk of dying. Um, there is a possibility of changing, as we have heard from ET or PV to malfibrosis, but it's overall very rare, uh, and there are no ways to predict over time whether this may happen in particular individual. Uh, therefore, uh, monitoring patients, uh, being aware about the blood change, the, the physical exam change with enlargement of the spleen, development of the symptoms. These are all aspects that we address when we see patients in a follow-up. Now, uh, the role of clinical studies were already addressed very well, but just to comment that uh, there is, uh, uh, in many patients, a hesitation to try uh, new medications that are in development, uh, and these are offered in patients uh, where the situation is such that the normal Standard therapies do not work very well. And I wish we have more approved therapies, more effective therapies for patients with ETA, PV, and malfibrosis so that we don't even talk about patients that don't have a good control of signs and symptoms uh, of ETPV or malfibrosis, but that's not the case. And therefore, there is a continuous need to improve our ability to control the signs and symptoms, prevent thrombosis, or improve life and prolong life and eventually cure patients with malfibrosis neoplasms. And that's the task that we all need to work together as a team. So it's a team effort between the healthcare team, patient, and the, we honestly, talking about companies that develop the medication. So it's a three-part uh, team that needs to engage together. And the role for uh, patient is, is amazing, and it's, I always applaud patients to in fact, are willing to try new medications because we uh, first would provide the new medications in a setting that is tightly controlled 
and the safety is priority. And the efficacy that we can see would lead to benefit for the, the particular patient that is on the study, and then to broader community of other MPN patients in a need. This is the only way to prevent, to, uh, to develop new medications, and you have heard about development of the JAK2 inhibitors. We have a number of new studies, particularly myelofibrosis, and some of these studies have been mentioned where there is a major need for uh, new drug development beyond the JAK inhibitors to improve the bone marrow environment, eliminate fibrosis, improve anemia, make people live longer with the disease, which we already partially have achieved with JAK inhibitors, but to really uh, make it chronic so that life is much longer, which is uh, more reasonable to expect with medications at the moment, with ultimate goal to eliminate disease and cure everybody, or make them eligible where there is no, uh, which is not the case right now, to make the majority of the patients with mild fibrosis eligible for bone marrow transplant with the ultimate goal to cure them. The transplant certainly is not an option for patients with ET and PV. Again, we are here talking about controlling the risk of thrombosis, not uh, life-saving procedures. So with that, I would conclude my part and uh, would be happy to engage in questions after the next uh, part, uh, which will be uh, provided by our colleagues, Ms. Puzo. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Vistovic. That was really excellent, really outstanding, and really going into more, many much of the detail of really the, um, the management of um, really of the care um, of, the of reducing the complications and really um, the communication with the healthcare team and the symptoms and really very important information for the day-to-day -day, um, care of people and their quality of life, so very important, and the call-out to call quality clinical trials as well, so thank you. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. And our next speaker is Victoria Puzo, and Ms. Puzo is an, online, is an oncology social worker, and she is Cancer Care's online support group program coordinator at Cancer Care. And Ms. Puzo is going to be addressing Cancer Care's free psychosocial programs and services and the role of support groups. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Ms. Puzo. Thank you, Carolyn. Um, as Carolyn said, I'm an oncology social worker here, and I work with many people diagnosed with cancer and their loved ones. Um, we've talked a lot about today about managing your care and quality of life, and I just want to talk um, about the importance of creating support networks and how cancer care can um, contribute to that. So um, Cancer Care is a nonprofit organization. We provide free professional support services to anyone affected by cancer, including the patient, uh, caregivers, family members, and friends. Um, cancer Care programs include individual counseling that we provide um, on a face-to-face -face basis in the New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut area, as well as over the phone, and that's offered nationally. We also provide support groups in our local offices in the tri-state area, as well as over the phone nationally, and our online programs are actually offered nationally and internationally. Um, we offer educational programs, as um, our program today, and practical help assistance navigating the healthcare system, so if you have you know, difficulty communicating with your doctor or you're unsure about the questions you should be asking, we can kind of help with that navigation. And we also offer some limited financial assistance, um, usually to help with things like transportation um, costs of getting to and from your appointments. Um, all of our services are provided by licensed master's level oncology social workers, and all of our services are free of charge. Our oncology social workers are trained in how a diagnosis can affect a person's life and um, their family or friends. We're also trained to help patients and their supports tackle the problems that accompany the disease, such as the financial demands, um, physical changes, social adjustment, and the psychosocial impact of care. Um, adjusting to and finding ways to coping with a disease, especially if it's something that's going to be treated more chronically, um, is a really important part of the healing process. So um, as many people probably already know, the, um, a cancer diagnosis affects the whole person and the entire family. So it's not just the person that's diagnosed with um, cancer, but they also their entire family that really has a hard time sometimes with that. So um, we encourage people to ask for help. We see that as a strength, being able to ask for help when you need it. Um, you don't have to go through this kind of process alone. And joining a support group is usually a really great way to connect with others who are going through a similar situation. 
um, and individual counseling can also provide a space um, specific to your situation to voice your concerns or navigate through some of the issues I mentioned earlier. Um, these connections can help lessen your isolation, and especially because we offer them over the phone and online, they're really easily accessible um, to either the patient or loved ones while you're going through treatment and dealing with um, the numerous appointments that you're going to. Um, so when you feel more emotionally supported, it can help you better deal with the diagnosis and treatment. Um, and specifically for um, MPNs, we, um, Cancer Care offers an online support group for blood cancers. So that can include MPNs as well as um, leukemias and lymphomas. And so we welcome um, patients to join that and it can be accessed on cancercare.org. Um, the online support groups are also offered to caregivers um, and the bereaved. So um, I, I definitely encourage people to look at our website, cancercare.org, to see the, um, the online support groups that we offer because they're accessible 24-7, people really find that to be um, a helpful and accessible, convenient way to get some extra support. Um, if you're interested or you have any questions about our services, I encourage you to call our HOPE line, which um, is all the calls are answered by oncology social workers, and that number is 1-800-813-HOPE. So that's 1-800-813-4673. Um, also the website is cancercare.org. Um, the website is very comprehensive and you can find information about our support services, about um, all of our other programs. We also have um, really helpful publications specific to NPNs and um, also other general publications that help um, understand how to cope with different challenges that come along with treatment. Um, and I think, you know, there's a lot that we learned today from this program and it's a lot of information to di digest and sometimes, you know, in, a, in an hour or two you might be thinking about something and, and, and have additional questions after the Q&A. So you can also feel free to call the 1-800 number and our social workers can do their best to, you know, answer some questions or um, help you understand what any of this information um, means to you and your loved ones. Um, so please don't hesitate to contact us and, um, you know, like I said before, please remember that you're not alone and our, I hope that our services can, can help any of you cope with your diagnosis or your loved one's diagnosis. Um, thanks for all of your attention and opportunity and I, I can put it over to Carolyn Mesner again. Oh, thanks, Victoria. That was excellent and really very informative. And we now do have time for questions, and I'm going to ask uh, Stephanie to explain to everybody how to queue up for questions. So we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. <clears throat> and if we don't get to your question, I'll explain to you at the end of the program how you can get your questions answered. Uh, Stephanie? Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. If you would like to ask a question, please press star then one on your touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Again, please press star then one to ask a question. And we have a question from one of our um, online participants, um, and uh, the question is from uh, um, Eileen. Um, what can I do to reduce the risk of a clot? Um, and so, um, Dr. Vistovsek, if you could address that question. Okay. Uh, that's a very good question. Uh, the clotting issue is particularly relevant for patients with ET or PV, where uh, the assessment uh, for um, therapy is based on the assessment of risk for clotting, as I have uh, mentioned before. Uh, this is important distinction from patients with myeloma fibrosis, which is more aggressive and comes with a different set of clinically relevant problems. So in ETNPV, let's use these two diseases as a, an example. We would use usually factors, and these are only two, age over 60 or history of blood clot to identify patients that are at the risk of a blood clot, which would be called high risk for clotting. Otherwise, the patient younger, not history of blood clot, we would call these patients low risk. Everybody would be dis uh, needed uh, to take uh, aspirin and baby aspirin, unless it's contraindicated, uh, would be the one to prescribe. More aspirin does not mean more benefit. It means more bleeding. So baby aspirin is usually what we suggest, 81 milligrams in the United States, 100 milligrams outside the United States, uh, to uh, decrease the stickiness between the cells. And uh, 
we would ask uh, and, and engage in correcting or preventing other problems that would uh, increase the risk of a, a blood clot. That would be in patients who have other medical problems to control the blood pressure, uh, eliminate the smoking, decrease the, uh, the weight if necessary, control the pulmonary problems like a sleep apnea if, if it's a problem, eliminate medications that can increase the risk of blood clotting like hormonal uh, supplements. Uh, like testosterone in men or uh, hormonal replacement therapies in female. Uh, so there would be a need for uh, looking beyond just the, the ETRPV and other medical problems, lifestyle changes, and medications to decrease uh, or prevent uh, the additional factors to increase risk of, of a clot. Um, and the patient obviously would uh, be part of that. It's not a prescription. It's a patient's engagement to counteract those issues. If there is a need for controlling the blood cell count in patients who are at high risk, then what we call cytoreductive therapy, the therapy that reduces the cells, is introduced, and these are hydroxyurea or anagolate or interferon or some of the new medications like uh, Jacafi that was mentioned, JAK inhibitors in patients with PV that don't do well on hydrea. So we have a spectrum of issues to cover to decrease, and the patient's understanding and involvement is, is primary uh, goal uh, from the uh, medical team. Excellent. Thank you so much, um, Dr. Vestovzak. And uh, we have a question in front of our online participants from Nancy. Has excess thirst been reported as a symptom of PV? Um, Dr. Um, Palmer, could you address that? I'm sorry, could you repeat that? Has excess thirst been reported as a symptom of PV? Um, I, I suppose it could be. Uh, there are certainly mechanisms. Um, it's hard to say. I haven't heard of that one specifically, but a lot of times people have um, quite varied uh, symptoms. So I, I would probably also want to see if Dr. Vestovic has anything to weigh in with that. Dr. Vestovic? Yeah, this, is very, this would be very unusual um, symptom, uh, and it has to be taken into, into the whole picture of the patient's condition. On its own, I have not heard... Uh, uh, this be a primary uh, concern or that the symptoms related to polycythemia vera. Perhaps there are, and I would look for other reasons why is this happening. Uh, the symptoms in isolation that uh, exist, and I would say, uh, let's say, another example, a patient that has excessive fatigue. Everybody has a degree of fatigue as we go through life and we are more fatigued as we get older uh, and uh, due to activity in life. but. For example, excessive fatigue without any other problem in patient who has good control of the blood cell count, let's say ET patient with the good control of the platelets, that would be difficult, for example, to connect with the ET, and one would look for other reasons. So uh, then if the fatigue is associated with the bone action pains, night sweating, low-grade fever, slight enlargement of the spleen, yes, then you would say, oh, yes, it does make sense. It's all related to the ET. So... <clears throat> It is always important to look at the whole person. Excellent point. Yes, thank you so much. That's really important. So actually, that's a symptom that one wants to bring to the treating healthcare team. Is that correct, um, Dr. Vistovzak? And yes. Dr. Okay. All right. mm -hmm. okay. And um, our next question, Stephanie? Our next question comes from Stephanie Kay. Your line is open. Um, yes, I'd like to know your thoughts on uh, treatment of PV with interferon. That's an excellent question. Um, Dr. Starbuck, um, would you address that question? Yes, uh, that is an excellent question. Uh, the field is changing. Uh, we uh, have been using for patients with a high-risk PV, and we have defined those patients that need uh, what we call cytoreductive therapy, therapy to control the blood cell count. Uh, those are patients with PV that have a high risk for blood clot, usually age over 60 or history of blood clot in the past. These are patients that don't need only phlebotomy and aspirin. They also need something to lower the blood cell count and control those blood cell counts and eliminate the need for phlebotomy. The hydroxyurea and interferon are actually, by experts in the field, in currently available guidelines for therapy of PV, placed in the first position. The suggestion is to use hydroxyurea, it's a pill, taken daily, or interferon, which is injectable under the skin. The interferon um, is biological agent. We only have it in our body, and it can be 
given in a higher dose as a medication. It does cause flu-type symptoms. It can cause some other side effects like uh, uh, autoimmune problems, uh, bone aches and pains, uh, perhaps sometimes rarely hair loss or uh, uh, other medical problems in the patients, uh, thyroid problems, depression, and things like that. Uh, and it's injectable. And although it is biological agent, people usually don't like to take it. It is easier perhaps to take a pill, less of a side effects, and it can last uh, longer. The pill can be taken much longer. Patients that uh, are interfering usually after some time need to stop it because of intolerance. But the field is moving very rapidly in developing new preparations of interferon. These are so-called long-acting interferons, so less toxicity and more efficacy. There are those that are given once a week under the skin. And in Europe in particular, there is a new one that is being developed, which is given every two or even every four weeks as an injection under the skin. I like to call this preparation super long-acting interferon. Hopefully, it will be developed in Europe for PV. Uh, there is a phase three randomized study underway for its approval, and then maybe it is going to come to United States. And with better tolerance to better efficacy, we can then talk about even biological modification of the disease, where there will be modification in the bone marrow, perhaps environment, where there will be elimination of the malignant cells to extent possible. Uh, we call this functional cure. We don't uh, brave, are not brave enough yet to call it cure completely. In about 20% of the patients with uh, long-acting interference, we do see elimination of the patients, for example, that have a jugular mutation. What does this mean for these patients? It's hard to say. These are ongoing studies, but we are making steps forward with these uh, preparations of interferon. Excellent. And um, we have another question, Dr. Vistovic, for you from June. I would like to know what Dr. Vistovic thinks about using project injections to counteract the fatigue and loss of energy associated with MS. And then I have MS and am doing well on a combo of Pegasus and Jexy. Uh, Dr. Vistovic, could you answer that question in a general way? <clears throat> Uh, yes, certainly. Uh, I have seen uh, occasional patients where the Jakafi and interferon are used. I did not understand the word that you said the, at the beginning, that uh, what I think about what was the Are uh, uh, using word? project injections? Project injections. I'm not familiar with that uh, particular uh, product. But uh, let's talk about uh, using uh, Ruxolitin. No, Procrit. I'm sorry. She, um, she just emailed a Procrit is what she meant. A Procrit, okay. Procrit. Certainly. Uh, so there are three medications here that we are talking about. So let's talk about the Procrit. Procrit is uh, another biological agent, if you like, that's a, uh, a growth factor for uh, red blood cells. So we, in our body, make this uh, in a natural way in a kidney when we need to make blood. It is a product that can be given as injection, similar to what I mentioned for interferon. And so if you give it in patients that uh, have a very low level of a growth factor in the blood, like, for example, in patients with the kidney failure, because the kidney makes it in the normal body, this is very valuable and increase the red blood cell count. In patients with malfibrosis, it is not really a matter of having a low growth hormone or growth factor in the body. The body does recognize that uh, anemia that comes with uh, malfibrosis is actually uh, disease process, and the body usually makes very high levels of, uh, of Procrit. The usual name uh, is erythropoietin. Erythropoietin is actually the name of the growth factor. Procrit is the name of the medication. Um, so it is possible to have a benefit from uh, further injections of Procrit or erythropoietin, although most of the people already have high levels in the blood, and the success in increasing levels of count with Procrit is low. The Jacafi and uh, interferon Pegasus, that's one of the interferons I mentioned, long-acting interferons, can be combined in some patients, but it's very rare, and we don't really know yet uh, the full benefit of uh, two, two medications together. There is a study underway in Denmark that is uh, exploring this combination. Excellent. Thank you so much. Um, and um, for Dr. Palmer, another question. From Annette, since MPNs are a rare disease, how do I know that my physician has enough experience with MPNs to treat me? Well, I think whenever possible, it is always good to to seek another opinion, and that applies for for anything in medicine. Um, 
and certainly there are centers that, that excel in, in myeloproliferative neoplasms. Um, you know, again, this is, this is always a group effort, so I think that if you do seek another opinion to, to go, uh, you know, to an institution that perhaps has more experience, it's never a bad thing. Um, I know just from the standpoint of, at being an institution where we see a lot of that, we're always very, very happy to work with referring physicians to make sure that you get the best care possible. So, um, you know, again, it's hard to, I, I think that everyone has a little experience, but it's always good to get an, an opinion from somebody who, who deals primarily with myeloproliferative neoplasms um, because it, it always sheds some new light on it and gives some new uh, viewpoints and possibly even the, the exposure to different therapies, therapeutic options. Oh, thank you. And another question from Jim. Um, are there any new developments with, and I guess Dr. Vistovzak actually, are there any new developments with immunotherapy when treating MPNs? Yes, uh, we are uh, very much involved, uh, MPN community of doctors, in trying to find medications that uh, would be looking at other aspects of a disease process or engage our bodies in fighting disease in a better way beyond just the inhibition of the uh, jack protein uh, or signals that lead to growth of the cells inside the cells. Uh, this is basically what... Uh, JAK inhibitors do inhibit the signals that make cells grow, and that's why the cells grow less and there is less information, so people have better control of signs and symptoms and may live longer with that, but we are looking beyond that. Uh, there are medications that uh, are meant to unleash, to say, uh, our immune system to fight the disease better. Uh, these are uh, hot medications, I would say, at the moment in the... Uh, oncology in general uh, that uh, uh, have been approved for uh, uh, from the skin cancer to lung cancer uh, to uh, uh, other uh, solid tumors and uh, we are uh, exploring in a clinical studies uh, these medications for these are called immuno checkpoint inhibitors um, some are calling them immunomodulators uh, we also are looking uh, as was, was mentioned before in medications that uh, would affect, in a biological way, a change of a cells to fibers, which is uh, certainly a modification of the immune system by affecting cells from the blood that make fibers in the bone marrow with medication PRM151. Uh, and uh, uh, looking at the medications that uh, would target specifically uh, markers on the uh, malignant cells uh, with uh, what we call antibodies. These are proteins that we can make uh, as a medication that are given, usually IV or injection under the skin, that attach specific proteins inside the bone marrow cells or even specifically malignant cells to alter them or, or to kill them. And there are a couple of studies with those antibodies, for example, here at MD Anderson for patients with myofibrosis. So there is a scope of, uh, of uh, projects or clinical studies, to say better, uh, exploring alternative ways of treating the disease. Excellent. Thank you so much. And a question for Dr. Palmer. Um, what impact uh, may myelofibrosis and its treatment have on my fertility menopause? I think you could address that. Um, well, I, I think certainly a lot of the medications that are used for symptom control um, are not recommended to be using, used during pregnancy. Uh, so th that's one thing. But then in terms of the, the different treatments, I mean, in, with regards to future fertility, um, we don't use a lot of cytotoxic chemotherapy, and that's generally what we see impact fertility. Uh, a bone marrow transplant obviously does um, remove uh, or really reduce the chance of future fertility. Um, the same thing applies for menopause. I think with um, any type of cytotoxic chemotherapy, which the only time you'd probably get that to any extent would be with the bone marrow transplant, that could potentially bring a person into earlier menopause. Um, but again, that, that's, that's usually when you get to the point of a bone marrow transplant, which is generally um, with pretty advanced myelofibrosis. With the other medications that are currently being tested and used, although you cannot use them during pregnancy, their use should not affect the ability to become pregnant at a future time point. Excellent. Thank you so much. And a question for Dr. Vistovzak. Um, 
from Eleanor, I was recently diagnosed um, and show no symptoms. Therefore, my doctor said immediate treatment was not necessary. Should I get a second opinion? And uh, Dr. Vestoff said if he could answer this in a general way um, because yes, we don't need a specific MPN. Yeah. Okay. So I think we have two questions. One is uh, uh, about the therapy for patients that do not have uh, signs and symptoms of the disease but do have a disease. So we call these patients early stage, if you like, uh, because uh, what makes us treat patients with myofibrosis at this time and age is presence of significant anemia or other very low blood cell counts with the goal to improve it, presence of a symptomatic enlargement of the spleen or liver with the goal to eliminate symptoms and reduce the organs, and uh, very bad quality of life with decreased performance, ability to walk, and weakness, and those symptoms, systemic symptoms that I mentioned before, with the goal to eliminate those. And if those are not present, then we usually observe the patient uh, until the time comes for uh, introduction of the therapies, uh, including the bone marrow transplant, as I mentioned before. Um, that is certainly not satisfactory, but it is just a reflection of a lack of medications that would be safe enough to give patients that otherwise have normal quality of life at least and not suffering from the disease signs and symptoms with the goal to introduce medications for prevention of those symptoms and signs to develop or to perhaps eliminate disease. There are, however, attempts to find the medications that would be safe enough to give patients who otherwise don't suffer from the disease symptoms and signs for prevention. And there will be, um, and I think it's already underway, in Europe, a study for patients like this uh, that are early stage where patients are randomized between the watch and wait approach and uh, they on their hand uh, to be given a JAK inhibitor. In this case, it would be ruxolitinib or a JAKOFI uh, with the goal to prevent things. So this would be one of the first studies in myofibrosis for prevention rather than intervention that we usually do when the things are not going well. Many uh, have asked, and I see a lot of patients that would like to explore a possibility of giving or taking interferon, particularly those long-acting interferons, which is very difficult at this point in time to justify uh, based on lack of any significant or serious um, scientific evidence for it. There is a lot of anecdotal experience and some small single institutional studies, but not large prospective studies where that would be proven to work to prevent anything. And there are symptoms preventing us from giving interference for a very, very long period of time. Um, so it, it is a tricky, tricky situation. In terms of a second opinion, uh, I agree with my uh, colleague, Dr. Palmer, that if there are any uncertainties, uh, I do encourage in general patients, and I would do myself if there are unanswered questions or uh, questions that need to be explored further in detail with somebody else to seek other uh, second opinion, um, not as a mandatory thing, but if that's the situation, that certainly is, is doable. That's excellent. Well, thank you very much. And I want to thank our speakers. You've all been extraordinary. This has been an amazing call. And I also want to thank all of you who have asked really such really terrific questions. These are wonderful questions, and they actually allowed our speakers to elaborate further on, on some, some issues and points that are very important for all of you to hear. Now, I do want to remind everyone that this is a one-hour workshop and that in planning a program like this, we do recognize that you have many needs that go far beyond the scope of one hour. So I do want to, I'd say that you may have some questions, and I know many of you do still have questions. And so I, uh, I would like to actually um, give you um, just some highlights of where you can get your questions answered. If you have questions specifically, about um, your medical treatments and what to do. We always recommend that people call the National Cancer Institute at 1-800-422-6237. Again, 1-800-422-6237. We also are partnering today with two MPN organizations. Um, so there's the MPN Education Foundation and the MPN Research Foundation. And those are both resources for you as well. But the National Cancer Institute does have uh, information specialists available all the time to answer your questions. And again, it's 1-800-422-6237.
If, on the other hand, you wish to get some practical financial assistance from cancer care or counseling services or join a support group or um, order publication or participate in one of our upcoming workshops, then I recommend that you call Cancer Care at 1-800-813-4673. Again, 1-800-813-4673. And I do want to remind you, this is part one of a two-part series. So part two on March 30th is managing aches and pains and treatment side effects from MPN. And part three is the role of nutrition, exercise, and meditation in coping with MPN, myeloproliferative neoplasms. So there's much more to come. And um, I, I encourage all of you to listen to those programs. And we also have a two-part series coming up on living with polycythemia vera, and that series is on March 28th and April 11th. And many of you have registered for all of these programs, but if you haven't, please do. Um, the information, of course, is available to all of you um, from all the materials we receive from Cancer Care and will be receiving when we send out the evaluation queue as well. So I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect, and everyone have a wonderful day.